Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to performance coach consultant, Shane Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to episode 327 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Every time I say that, it baffles me. 327 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Shane Murphy to this episode of the podcast. This episode has been a long time coming, and I know I say that every week, but it does take a little bit of time to line up diaries, get people in the right position to be able to uh, spill all on the podcast. So in this episode, we start off with discussing Shane's transition from a full-time employee at Manchester City to then being a consultant and a full-time consultant and managing his time, how much of a pull that was to stay with City, even though it maybe wasn't doing what he wanted to do long-term. And just that transition, which I think is really interesting, especially during now with COVID and maybe people having that thought of, should I go self-employed? Is it a risky strategy? So we dive into that with Shane. Then we move on to human movement and that tapping into the technical coach technical tactical coach to really start to develop the movement that they want for their playing style um, for their ideal player etc then we dive into injuries and how Shane has has switched his mindset when it comes to certain injuries and, and rehabbing them injuries then we finish off with some chat around conditioning versus fitness which them last two points um intertwine very very nicely with some case studies from his time at Manchester City so thank you for tuning in hope you get something from it I know you will because it's a great episode long overdue with Shane this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Perch Perch enables velocity based training no strings attached engineered at MIT Perch uses small and mobile cameras to monitor and manage weight room performance without detracting from it by passively collecting speed and power data, delivering it in real time to athletes and storing it for post-workout analysis, Perch enhances workouts, reduces injuries and saves time. Perch works with every level of organisation, from the 2019 National Championship LSU football team to the NFL's New York Giants, military installations, high schools and to a number of growing sports performance facilities and even individual garage gyms. Purchase portable, easy to install and intuitive to use, making it ideal for every facility and every training goal. No more pre-workout setup, no more attachments to athletes and barbells, no more broken strings. Set Perch up once and optimize every rep. Reach out to Perch today and for exclusive deals and offers, tell them Rob sent you by going to perch.fit forward slash pacey. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs' performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by I Measure You. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from I Measure You is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So I Measure You have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. 
If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website, iMeasureU.com, or follow them on Twitter or Instagram, at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Shane Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So this evening, I'm delighted to welcome for a long overdue chat with Shane Murphy. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Uh, thanks, Rob. Good to be on. Thanks for coming on, mate. So anyone doesn't know who you are, normal podcast style, bit on your background, education, and what you're currently doing now. Yeah, um, so I started as a sports scientist. So I did a sports science degree in University of Limerick back in Ireland. And in the third year of your degree, you can go on a work placement. So my work placement, fortunately, saw me at Cardiff City. So I spent eight months over at Cardiff City. That was my first introduction to full-time football. Uh, so I finished my degree then. And, uh, and when I finished my degree, um, I got a job offer at, at Blackburn Rovers. Um, so that was a kind of an intern again with the first team. So I went over there first year under Mark Howard, uh, and that was a, a great insight into like more. Obviously, that was the Premier League at the time, so that was it was really interesting to see how how full t- uh, full time in football works. And uh, I spent three and a half seasons there before moving on to Liverpool. Uh, I went to Liverpool's academy under Andy Boyle, uh, and in that time when I was at Liverpool, I started working for the Welsh national team also in their under 19s and under 21 squads. Um, I didn't spend very long at Liverpool. I was only there six months, uh, and then I joined Man City. I was at Man City for for seven years. I kind of worked across many age groups. Started with the twelve to sixteens, then moved up to the twenty threes. Had a bit of time with the first team, both men and women's, and then I've more recently just sort of left and set up my own company. So uh, in that time, I was there. I decided to to hand in my notice and take the big leap of faith. Um, and since then, I've just been running my company, which is SDM Performance. And I've been very fortunate uh, this year to to have uh, a few sort of consultancy roles. So I, I remain a consultant still for Man City. So the City Football Group, as you may know, own Melbourne, New York uh, and Man City. And so I spent the first part of 2019 or 2020, sorry, in, in New York with the New York City football team, uh, leading preseason over there. I came back, I started work for Satanta College, which is a university in, in Ireland, an online university. So I started to work for them and now I'm a master's um, lecturer on their program. And then le- le- later in the year, I started to work with the Scottish national team. So I'm also the football scientist uh, for the Scottish national team under Graham Jones as head of performance. So yeah, it's been a bit of a whirlwind uh, leap, I think, since I left. But fortunately enough, things have kind of Gone, gone well, and I, I still remain a sort of performance coach, a uh, consultant now for, for, as I said, the three sort of the Satanta College, the City Football Group, and and Scotland. Nice. I'm not even going to give a mutual friend of ours, Rob Hayworth, any airtime whatsoever. No. He doesn't deserve it. Does not deserve it. He does not. <laughs> he does. Um, Who's Rob? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But work placement. That was obviously a key thing that was set up with your university that allowed you to get your foot in the door. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. it was was great. I think that's very important for students now. I think that's kind of like gold in terms of currency, trying to get that experience. And fortunate enough, UL still offers that on the third year, go out and do a work placement. And I, I feel if I didn't have that, at the time, it would have been I would have struggled to get the Blackburn, and then all of a sudden I would have struggled to move on and up my career. So that is a vital part of of the development. So it's definitely a very good catalyst um, to you know to to get a, a job in 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 the practical setting. I think so. Yeah, that was the cornerstone really of of, of my my career, if you like. How long were you at City? I know you're still there, but in an employee. No, yeah, yeah. So full time, seven years. It's full time, seven years. Uh, so I started 2013 or the start or the end of 2012, and you know, only last year I left at the end of last year. So, yeah. So that's that's many people's dream job to be at somewhere like City in the academy or in the first team. So was that difficult for you to to make the the jump away from full time employment with someone like? Uh, employer like City and and I suppose what what were the main drivers behind that? Yeah, there, there's two things with that. It one makes it really hard to leave because it's such a good organisation, full of like extremely talented players first and foremost, really good coaches and a very very much development culture. Even from the first team, everyone's trying to improve themselves. You know, Sam Harris and his t- his team, uh, the first team and the medical side of things. Everyone's trying to you know get get you know sort of sharpen the sword if you like. So it's a great environment to be in, but and it's a very difficult one to leave in. But also having been in there 
gives you sort of the tools then to know that like you have some standards or you know kind of what good practice is so it does it does make it harder to leave but it also does help when you do leave because you've been grounded and you've had to go through the the rigors of 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 of, of managers like like Grant Downey, for instance, who puts a lot of pressure on you to try and develop yourself and develop the team and the people around you and stuff. So, yeah, I think it helps you. The lessons you've learned certainly um, have, have helped me. What I'm doing now, of course, um, but yeah, like the 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 decision to to leave uh, full time employment wasn't like something overnight. I didn't wake up one morning and think I was going to leave. I, uh, it was a sort of decision that was been a, a seed was planted about 18 months ago and I sort of was figuring it out in my head for a long time before I actually finally made the leap. What are the key lessons that you've learned from that process? I'm sure there's there's so many. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing when you're going through that process of thinking, should I leave? There's, there's a big pull to stay in the mm. not not to say that it's a comfortable job, absolutely not, because you've got people like Grant who are testing you and, and want you to develop every day, but then you've got this big wide world out there of consultancy and potential insecurity or how people mm-hmm. would perceive insecurity. But what were the key lessons that you, you learned from that? Not only just the leaving, but the process before leaving and then finally making the transition. Yeah, um, I think the, the well currently now the biggest lesson I'm learning at the minute is just trying to how it is more psychological because when I first left it was about like recognizing that I I, I my identity of being a practitioner in elite football or sport or whatever as I was now gone you know I have to accept that like I'm not because it, it does so demanding sixty hours a, a week typically or more uh, eleven or ten and a half months of the year sort of thing so it's very demanding and it's a big part of your life and suddenly that kind of is removed so what fills that gap you know obviously your business or what you're doing next fills the gap but recognizing that you're not doing that anymore as a thing you're doing something else is the first step and I know I don't want to trivialize that because that's an important part of the process and then after that and you set up your own company and then you've got a routine and you've got a way of working um one of the biggest challenges I have at the minute is like uh not being too hard on myself when I when I'm not like on it all day you know because we've all had those um days in work in full-time work where you're not like you're not 100 percent, you know you're not your best self on certain days because life is happening and all that but when you're working for yourself you feel guilty when you're not maximizing your potential do you know what i mean uh, but uh, but in work you get away with it you don't you don't really think about it you almost you're almost delighted you got away with a soft day but <laughs> when you work for yourself it's different it's if it's a funny psych uh, psychology with it uh, but then when you have good days and you do you make successful decisions or things happen if the feeling is, is is far superior than anything i would have gotten i think you know just just working for a company if you know what i mean um it's, yeah. it's all on you isn't it it's all on you yeah. so you're the you're the marketing person, you're the salesperson, you're the accountant, as we yeah. discussed before. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're everything. I mean, one one thing that I struggle with is is forced periods of time off, Christmas being one of them. Yeah. You, you force yourself not to do any work because you're told you shouldn't be doing any work. But all you do is spend your time doing is thinking about work. You're not doing anything, but you're thinking about it. So you kind of, of this weird middle place that just build the kind of anxiety builds and builds before yeah. you then crack yeah. back on in January and you're almost a little bit relieved. Like everyone's back at work. It's okay for me to be working. Yeah. I can crack on. Is that something yeah. that you've found as well? Yeah, yeah, very difficult to do. And I think I would have been like that when I was when I was at Man City or Liverpool or whatever. I, like even on days off, I'd feel guilty for ha- you're not doing much. I, I don't know if that's what everyone works in full-time you know, sport or whatever or any role. Um, yeah, you feel almost guilty for taking time off and you feel guilty for having a bit of fun or something. It's so, so, so crazy. But I've gotten better at that since I left, to be honest. Uh, I, I, I relish the time with say friends or family now which I didn't always get uh, because I was in a different country but also the job was very demanding so yeah I, I'm, I'm getting better at that sort of that it's definitely psychology and it's definitely a, a, a mindset change but yeah that, that is something that used to always play in my mind but I've I've worked on it I guess <laughs> I've worked on being normal <laughs> if that's, <laughs> that's the way of saying it yeah 100% I mean it's so funny you should say that about being normal because when I left full-time football uh, six year, five or six years ago. I ended up going back to the club in, um, in, a different, in a different role. 
And I remember speaking to the guys, the, the, the young lads, the, the youth team players that were still there. And it was coming up to Christmas. And they were like, oh, do you get do you get Christmas off? Like, have you, have you sorted out Christmas? I was mm-hmm. like, I get Christmas off. Like, I'm in a relatively normal job. Yeah. Don't ever think that what you're doing is normal mm-hmm. because they won't get to know what's happening at Christmas until 4 o'clock on Christmas Eve. No. You no. know, that kind of situation. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, that's that's fine like that's the world that you're in but it's that's not normal mm, it's not mm. good or bad it's just that's not really the how the world goes you know works and, and just like, like know that um you know i've kind of moved into what a bit of normality so it's yeah it's um it's a it's a strange transition for sure it is it's funny how quickly you forget too you forget the amount of hours that you used to do and you forget the sort of the, uh, I don't want to say new normal because that's branded around far too often at the minute, but you forget like what is now your life. You know, you forget what you used to have, the 60 hours, the travel every day, the the missed family events and all that. And you sometimes just forget how kind of lucky you have, you're good, you have things now. You know what I mean? When you can get to spend time with the family more often and at your own leisure, like when you want to, you can do it. Like if I want to, if, if the time permits, if I wanted to play a game of golf with my dad, for instance, I don't have to like you know ask seven people to get a day off do you know what i mean so it's yeah it's but there's also negatives to it as well so you know like i said before there's that psychology of allowing yourself to have a a down day or or a light day and and not be 100 percent on it so it's kind of pros and cons i guess to to both situations Mm -hmm. one thing we chatted about beforehand was your your title yeah um performance coach and it's the consultant bit that everyone does feel when people say consult it's always a bit like oh yeah am i comfortable with that is there a like a negative perception that you almost maybe think you something that you don't want to come across as yeah but it's something that i think more and more people are considering whether it's even guys who are early in their career especially guys who were more further along in their career but what what advice would you give to people considering that removal from full-time employment to do potentially juggle a few things that are going on at the same time as a consultant? Yeah. Um, I, I don't think you should take the decision lightly. Um, I, I definitely think you should think long and hard. Like it took me 18 months, uh, probably longer really, if I'm being honest, but definitely 18 months of, of proper thinking about it. And I do think you have to do the due diligence there because it's quite scary when you it's liberating but it's also quite scary when you do it and I, I would think you would need some sort of a plan if you're going to make that leap of faith like and it also depends on your own personal circumstance you know if you've got a dependent or you know you're in a different situation in your life then that's obviously something to be considered as well but um look in every decision in life there's the, every every action you make there'll be a consequence good or bad you know and I think you've got to be comfortable with that as well. Um, I I did it a lot of the time because I, I felt like, I felt, say, in my role, I mean, see, not that there was other roles maybe that you could have pursued or, or looked into, but definitely the role I was in, I felt like I'd not maxed out it, but I was getting kind of comfortable in a way at what I was doing. Like, you know, it was a challenge, of course. There's always going to be a challenge at a club like that, but I kind of knew what I was doing pretty much you know like i just needed more i just, i felt like i needed more without sounding um you know anyway kind of derogatory to the role or anything no, like that but not. i just i just felt that i needed a change and i didn't know what that change was and then with that sort of opportunity about working with other people and other things and potentials and all that and i i, I did take a leap of faith I, I didn't have it all set up like it was like I, I met Graham Jones a few months after leaving. It wasn't like I had it all set up and then I'll leave once I have the Scotland gig or anything like that. It was far from that. And I didn't know CFG would, would allow me to be a consultant either. All these things weren't known before I left. But I guess if you have a vision, you have an idea, and you're willing to really work for it and go through the pain barrier, if you like, then, yeah, that's that. you're in a good place then, I think. Um, yeah. People will see like a Grant Downey or a, a Chris Barnes have maybe consultant in their LinkedIn profile or mm. you know job title or whatever, and they've been around for a long time. Yeah, would you say that people need to build up a relatively stable experience, you know, level of experience before making that 
that jump, I suppose it, it's, it all depends where you want to pitch yourself once you do leave. But yeah. do you think it's it's better to build up 10 years experience in the industry before expecting to then remove yourself and, and be touted by uh, people who do want consultants? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Like you have to, you know, what the, what a full-time role looks like and feels like and understand the challenges that that poses. And uh, yeah, for sure. Like, And there's no way you, I, I think, you know, if I said made a decision five years ago, I don't think I would be now doing the things I'm doing. There might be timing, you know, and all that stuff, but I definitely wouldn't have the experience or the know-how to sort of do things I'm doing now. But I could have spent another 10 years you know, doing full time and then left and maybe I would have been better a consultant also then. But I'm fortunate enough the way it worked out for me that my development over last year has been more than if I stayed because of the things I got to work across. But for sure, there's a difference, I guess, between like the word consultant doesn't always fit right with me. And we discussed how the, and the only reason I say consultant is because I'm not full time. It's the only thing for me. Uh, sometimes consultant has this connotation of like you see yourself as an expert or something. I far from believe that, and I don't. I don't feel like that anyone is really an expert in a, in a field that's only been existing a number of years. There's people who are very, very good at what they do, but expert is a big word, and it suggests that we know everything, and we're far from that. Like I think what we know and what we don't know there's far more of what we don't know than what we do know now what we're trying to do is trying to prove ourselves wrong as scientists all the time is trying to figure out look are we, what we're, what we're doing is that right like is it is it good for performance and we're we're figuring things out and sports science is a kind of a you know it's behind physios in terms of how many years it's been around so we're finding our feet in how we embed ourselves in in elite environments and we're definitely getting better you know tony strudwick talks a lot about that when sports science kind of exploded we were doing all weird and wacky things and now we're a bit more kind of streamlined and i think the best thing sports science ever did was understand where it sits in in the bigger in the bigger system you know we're, we're a part of a cog we're a small cog you know that's just turning a big one and you know if we start believing we're the masters of it then i, I think we make mistakes you know but if we can help and support what's trying to be achieved in whatever context we're in then i think then i think we're doing the right things you know it's just unfortunate there's not the word that really fits because like you said yeah, that consultant role consultant word does come with a maybe a negative connotation in this in this scenario but yeah yeah um yeah alternatives unfortunately no i i just see it as i'm not full-time but anyone i'm just kind of a, I'm a free spirit <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so so the so next bit of well next 40 minutes or so we'll, we'll dive into some more technical aspects of your experience and your and your knowledge human human movement mm-hmm. been one of them yeah and I, i've been recently going through past episodes of the, of the podcast and and one topic that came up was my experience and the, the guests who were on um guys from championship football had the same experience and been sub next to a coach and he go it doesn't move well and you're mm-hmm. like well mm-hmm. what do you mean well, I don't really know, but I just know that's not right. Yeah, and you, yeah. you're trying to kind of get pull this information out, but it just the coach just knows that's not what yeah. he wants to see. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, from that particular, have you had that particular situation, and how do you then kind of pick that apart to mm-hmm. try to mold something so that that coach goes, okay, I don't know what it is you've done, but that now looks a little yeah. bit better or a lot better. Yeah. That's it. It's a very good point. And uh, the coaches, like, even though they may not have as much knowledge, maybe in terms of movement and biomechanics and all that stuff and muscles and everything else, I think that intuition of a coach is so important. And we definitely, that's how I always want to sit is, is next to the coach. I understand the technical um, aspirations, if you like, of the coach and then fit my philosophy around that to, to, to better the team, to better the athlete and stuff. So I think sometimes we have this idea. Uh, he doesn't move well on the pitch and that's the coach's intuition and then our idea of he moves well is like in a squat or a hip hinge or a pull or a push and I think there is a big discrepancy between one and the other you know I think there's a there's a gap to be bridged there and we at Man City we set up trying to bridge that gap best we could so we talked about like the the, the in 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 the gym sort of scenarios of movement like your hip hinge and your pulls and all that kind of stuff but then also the on pitch movement stuff can we assess that the way we would assess a squat or, or a or a lunge or whatever else and that was the kind of that helped bridge that gap between what the coach was seeing and what we were seeing so we we broke it down into uh, i can't remember was it 10 categories and we went like acceleration deceleration um jump jumping was a really big one i think that's a really 
a bad executed skill jumping, like jumping off one leg in particular and how they utilize the other swing leg to jump off one leg. I think that's an important um, skill to learn, especially young age. And max velocity is, a, is an important skill to learn at a young age also. Um, but all, uh, changing, cutting, change of direction, turning over your left shoulder, turning over your right shoulder. And also in football, what happens a lot is that transitional movements that we used to call it. So how, how a defender, for instance, like a center back, will um, kind of uh, travel back towards his box if he's in, say, the halfway between the 18 and the, and, the, and the halfway line, how he travels and how he transitions back. So a back pedal, for instance, wouldn't be the most best thing. Oh, okay, he'll transition at some point, maybe momentarily. But if he's traveling, if he's given up space, traveling back, backpedaling, he's also marking someone at the same time. That's not a very economic place to be that's a very your center of mass is too high you can't change direction quick enough and at the elite level you're going to be exposed if you're doing that and the best players again intuition coming into it the best players see that you know the best players see that someone they don't know consciously that oh look his center of mass is above his hips there you know what i mean they don't know that but they know that intuitively and they can pick up on cues on certain people so they know when to make that run for instance so i think movement is a very important thing but i i think we have to get away from thinking movement just as a gym and then movement in on the pitch. And I think for us as sports scientists, we like our, our S&C coaches, we like to have a process behind what we do. We don't like being too fluffy, which there's nothing wrong with a bit of a bit of ambiguity, I don't think. But we certainly have to um, sort of, where we thought was a good way to do it was to sort of classify different movements in the pitch and that's football related but you'll have other sports that are more specific also. You know, that doesn't, that doesn't fly for other sports you know that that stuff i discussed there so we have got to consider what our sport is is asking of us and i think what that's what we did we classified different movements that are specific to our sport in those contexts so were you trying to objectify and put numbers on these these 10 these 10 skills that maybe the coach was obviously just from intuition and, and coach's eye was seeing so you were trying to objectify it for him and break it down yeah we might go that in the individually we might have gone that we we didn't really quantify it we more is qualitative we we maybe recorded it at times and you can see straight away if someone doesn't say for a single leg jump for instance you want to take off single leg jump where you're traveling backwards as a center half you can if you can visualize a, a defender doing that crossover and front step and then jumping off one leg to to, to head a ball at the highest point so the mechanics of that movement can should be recorded now it's very difficult to give that a number but it can be recorded to see where is the breakdown and what we used to do was well I can just think I can visualize a player just being a poor header of a ball, right? And uh, or me, yeah, it's fine. You can find them everywhere, right? They're usually not playing football anymore, but uh, yeah. So you you can visualize that player, and then but in the gym they move really well. Corner movement jump might be excellent. Single leg jump might be excellent, and all that. And there's some there's some problem about them transferring those skills in the gym and those high outputs in the gym into their sport because they can't win a header now. You, what you can do there is you 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 test them in the kind of the lowest common denominator. Just do just do a jump in the air for a snowball, okay? And you see, oh, they can get good mechanics. Then you add in other external variables, other factors like you might cross the ball in, or you might bounce the ball up, or you make them travel a few steps back and then they jump, or even you might put them in the state of fatigue and see where the breakdown of that skill is. And then once you find out the the okay where does success is and then where does not success, then that can teach you a little bit of how where to be where you need to train because and i think that is our job as sports scientists it isn't just to get them stronger in the gym it isn't just to get them to jump higher it, that isn't enough i don't think for me it isn't and i was never satisfied with that like it only matters if he can now win headers in the game you know and i think we can work closely going back to the first point work closer with technical coaches trying to identify where the performance gap is um, okay, we have to tick the box in the gym because if they can't jump, they're never going to be able to jump in a, in a different context. Well, ironically, that sometimes does happen, by the way, but it, it, typically not. If they don't really jump in any scenario, they're not going to jump in the, the most complex scenario. But um, I think there's, there's a gap there to be had. And, and I think recognizing that gap is just as important as you improving someone's counter movement jump by 10 centimeters. So in that scenario, let's use centre half because I can definitely raise <laughs> the non-heading six yes. foot four centre half who seem to right. get smaller. Yeah, rather yeah. than turtleneck. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so I can definitely relate to that. Using using that scenario, what would you 
at what point would you involve the coach back into the scenario, back mm-hmm. into this situation, this kind of continuum along that moving along to, to yeah. improve someone? Yeah. Where would they where would they fit in? The best thing for me is if you if you decide that a player is going to improve their performance a lot by improving this skill, I'd involve them from the start. Now, they'll become less involved early doors if you're doing just a strength development. But as, even if you are doing strength development, there's still mechanics to be improved. And I think a coach needs to intervene there. And then straight away, you've got just a holistic view on the player. And, and that's important for the player to recognize because we assume that the player knows I'm doing this exercise in the gym and that's going to transfer to performance. But rarely that happens. And the younger you get, the less they see the transfer. You know, they don't they don't join the dots quick enough. So for me, if you can, if a coach is willing to do it, if a coach is willing to invest in that time, then I, I believe they're there from the start. And then as they progress up to the skill and as there's less breakdown of the skill, you know, in terms of a simplistic form, and now you can add in a ball, you can add in a different cross, that's where the coaches take on their own sort of, you know, they take it to a new level because they see the game differently to, to we do. But uh, but you're still part of the process, I think, there because you can still make biomechanical changes that may need to happen uh, for success to, to, to really unfold, you know, um, because there may be still an issue with the left hip. It doesn't load properly enough, so he's still not getting enough triple extension or still not getting a hip extension on that to get him that height that he's, he's asking for. There's just one little bit left, and no matter how much coaching you do, how much reps you do, if that left hip isn't going to load or, or drive force, then it's not going to translate into height, if you like. You mentioned right at the start, well, start of this little, um, little bit about the influence of the... Uh, the sport, the sport itself, mm. and understanding it. Yeah, I put something here that's come up a couple of times, but pretty more recently, and that's the debate around whether sports scientists and strength and conditioning coach would, coaches would actually benefit from a, a a basic technical coaching qualification to get them in tune with how coaches are thinking and how coaches view the view the world, view the game. Is that something that you'd encourage, or do you? not think that's particularly that that's maybe going too far um what i think is the sport really matters i know uh, a few people have said before that your you know our sports are more similar than they are different and stuff like that and people have different opinions on it and i'm not here to say that i i did i i think that that's wrong but i disagree with that you know i think the sport really matters and i think the sport is a big driver in my decision making now I didn't do formal coaching badges. I did very small ones, but it doesn't really matter. I don't think you need to have that. I don't think you need to formally go down the process. But if that does help you, I think, why not? I definitely do think you have to spend time analyzing the sport, analyzing the coaches, understanding what they're trying to achieve and where you fit in. Um, Because the sport, for me, determines what the function needs to be and the limitations are. And and when you're selecting exercises, if you're not considering the sport, you might be driving some adaptations that are not going to benefit the sport. The example I would use, I go with Maroon maroon myself in football a bit. I don't want to talk about football all the time. But say a a sport like uh, golf, for instance, right? I see a lot of golfers doing heavy squats, which, okay, it's fine. There's going to be, um, they're going to get stronger and blah, 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 blah. But one of the adaptations of a squat, and we can't deny this, is that you have to have a stiff spine if you're going to squat. The more you squat and you're going to lift heavy, your spine has to, you have to brace the musculature system around the spine. You've got to brace the spine itself in order to transduce force up and down, up and down the body to now lift this weight to overcome the inertia of the, of the bar or whatever. Now, the squat over time is going to stiffen up the spine because it's, it's an adaptation that the body will, uh, uh, will, uh, will, will make in order to make you more successful at a squat. Now, if you've got a, if you've got a golfer, I, I would argue that that is not the best exercise selection for that athlete. Now, the people are going to jump on and say, well, they need to be stronger. Yes, they do need to be stronger. And, and I'm not saying that they won't benefit from a generic program and your lower level athlete won't benefit from a generic program. Of course they will. All I'm saying is that there's better ways to do it. It's not the only way to do it, but there's better ways to do it. And I do think we have to consider not only just the primary adaptation of the sport, but the secondary adaptation, or the exercise, sorry, but the secondary adaptations of selecting an exercise that has the impact it has on the body, because it does. And we can avoid it if we want and, and, and say it doesn't happen, but I've seen it happen so many times. And um, yeah, I, it's just my opinion. I'm not trying to enforce my, my opinion on anybody, but it's just how I see things. And I, and, um, I think that's an important um thing to know especially in my practice i think that's that's something you've got to consider 
So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Shane. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we dive into a case study around a hamstring injury. Then we finish off with a chat around conditioning versus fitness and looking into Shane's experience working at Manchester City with some of the technical and tactical coaches and how that really formed part of his philosophy moving forwards of how he develops drills. So I hope you enjoy part one. Great part two coming up. But just before we do dive into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. And also sponsoring this episode today is Black Box Fitness. So Black Box Fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So if you are looking for a full gym fit out, if you're lucky enough to be looking for a full gym fit out, or just want to add additional pieces to what you've already got, whether that be barbells, dumbbells, plates, maybe a new rack, some flooring, etc., etc., have a little look at what Black Box Fitness can offer. So you can head to their website, which is blkboxfitness.com, or for a more informal view of what they do, head over to their Instagram because they've got some really cool images of some of the recent projects that they've run in Australia, in the UK, in Europe, etc. So head over to their Instagram, which is at blkboxfitness, and they're the same on Twitter. Just going back to the football and, and team sports scenario and using that thought process as the driver for this this next little little question, I suppose. Is there anything that you see a lot of or you've seen a, seen a lot of, maybe you've done it yourself, that you've then gone through that same thought process as you just explained with the golfer mm-hmm. and thought about the secondary and the, the tertiary effects of prescribing a certain exercise? And you've moved away from something that you have previously done or you, you, you see a, a lot and is, is popular is there any example you could potentially give there yeah i, I think uh one example i did a, an article i didn't publish it yet was just around the the adductors and how we train the adductors um and i think we've become a, a little bit too obsessed with tension and how much tension a muscle can generate is de- generally deemed as a better fit for for an athlete now we used to be all about length like when yoga came around and it was ryan Giggs with his yoga and it was all about length and yoga was the best thing we kind of come away from that now it's more strength and tension orientated but the pro the, the answer lies in both like a muscle needs to have length to allow you tell yourself or the athlete to get into the motion but then it also has the tension and the capability to get itself out of the motion and for instance, like if we, 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 we tend to sometimes just train muscles, and I was guilty of this, just train muscles and muscles will take care of themselves, but we need to train patterns more often because pattern, I, I think it was Team X that said this, it was like, um, I can't think of the quote, I think I wrote it down somewhere, like if we if we train patterns, we, we don't miss muscles, but if we train muscles, we miss patterns. And I think that's a, a nice way of putting it. Uh, but like the Copenhagens, for instance, are, are, are an adductor, there's no doubt they're an adductor exercise. But the demand of the doctor depends on the function of the sport. This is why I'm saying the sport matters. Like the most common way you will pull your doctor, your doctor longest typically is be the one that you pull the most. But the most common way you'll pull your doctors is the trail leg of a change of direction in sport. If you think I'm I'm here and I'm turning left, it isn't my left leg that will go. It's my right leg. It's my trail leg. I don't know if it's a kind of mirrored image here, but it's my trail leg that goes. So the, the hip is going into um extension first it's an extension 
abduction. It's in um, abduction, um, and it's uh, it's in an internal or generally internal rotation, and that is loading the adductor about distally and proximally in all three planes of motion. Now, if we just train the adductor in single plane in the frontal plane, basically what the adductor hole is for, then I think we miss out on the pl- on the plane that is most. Um, problematic in if you know what i mean because when we stand up it changes the mechanics completely it changes the demand of our doctors completely um and i suppose that's a separate podcast to go into that Mm -hmm. but so i just think i went down that road of just worrying about tension and i maybe went down the road of just worrying about length now i consider more about patterns and how does it all come together and how does it all fit together okay some certain times i'm not talking about every time certain times uh, you know at a low level injury maybe you need some tension to build muscle bulk or whatever it might be but at some point you got to make the transition you know up the chain a little bit you know closer to the movement closer to the mechanics of the sport closer to the mechanical or the mechanism of injury um so yeah i i i think that's kind of a mistake i maybe made in the past so using that adductor as an example, what alternatives and where have you gone with that? Maybe moving away, not moving away from the Copenhagen, but yeah, just transitioning to something to get all the things that you just explained. Yeah. So it, sometimes it's a lot about like recognizing that, okay, the symptom might have been the, like the symptom is not always the problem. You know, it's kind of the analogy of someone keeps banging their head off a wall and they're getting a headache. So you keep treating the headache with Panadol. But if you stop banging your head against the wall, then you wouldn't have a headache you know so like sometimes the problem may be the hamstring or the adductors or whatever it might be but the problem is just their general movement of their hips is causing the pain to be the grind so i wouldn't necessarily just go after the adductors as a problem i would look at the biomechanics and i would do a full assessment of the person to figure out why this may be the problem they're having because the scenario i would use is like you could have a mechanism for adductors right could be the same mechanism for an MCL and could be the same mechanism where someone is injury-free. So the the injury a player gets may not be just because of there's an issue with that muscle. It may be because just the biomechanics of the player meant they are more susceptible to that type of injury. So if we don't address the root of the problem, then sometimes we may keep getting recurring because the, the grinds are very recurring injury. We may keep getting recurring injuries and we might make them as strong as you possibly can. Like hamstrings is a great example. Like if we make the hamstrings as strong as possible, then okay, they're bullet they're bulletproof is in, in some, you know, I made that mistake. And then you keep getting hamstring injuries. But what is it then? Is it strength or is it not strength? And strength getting stronger doesn't always solve the problem and i think the only way we solve the problem is looking at it from a holistic point of view seeing the whole picture not just the not just the woods but seeing the forest you know and i think that's that's a that's an important lesson i think i picked up over the last number of years that's an interesting interesting little quote because Eamon flanagan said exactly the same thing on um mastermind that i did with him and uh, bushek snyder and uh, and joel smith just throw straight if if we're unsure throw strength at it but i think he says something like strength is not the answer to every problem. strength Mm -hmm. is the solution to every every problem but we we spoke we spoke beforehand about a a little case study around um a hamstring injury and you've you've touched on it there a little bit would you better take us through that is that that all right yeah yeah um and this is kind of my uh, i have to credit um a company called red pill and and the guys at red pill so james jowsey and phil mansfield who uh, like the reason why i kind of went on this journey was i became very frustrated as a practitioner that i didn't uh have many more tools than just getting them stronger or whatever more powerful or or hypertrophy or whatever i felt like that they were great skills to have but what if a player came into the gym and couldn't load the left hip because he's feeling a little bit of pain on his left, say he split squat and he was feeling pain in his left left hip flex or whatever? My three options were go see a physio, stop doing the exercise or change the exercise. And I felt that wasn't good enough. Like personally, just felt I wasn't enough as a practitioner. I wasn't given the best service. So I went along this journey and they helped me along this path and they filled a void, if you like, in, in my delivery. So anyway, having had that sort of journey and that, this guy I went on a I, I started taking cases that were difficult so I took a, a player who was at a professional club a Premier League club um, and he had in his history eight hamstring injuries four on the left four on the right and the player was just in in distress you know every injury has a uh, you know it needs a rehab of course but has a kind of a a black mark behind you, you drag you take it with you right you, you don't you, okay you fully recover but 
it's it's left it left a mark on the body if you like, and it all it's a, it's in your passport that you've had hamstring. But having eight of them, four on the left, four on the right, and you feel and the player felt like not one of them was any good. Do you know what I mean? Not just my left hamstring was a problem; both were. Um, anyway, so I, I did a bit of background into them and ask a lot of questions, and we go into the the history and, and and you find out how long ago they were and everything else, and then you find out like he's had a a really good hamstring program for pretty much his whole career. Like So he was doing every type of good hamstring exercise you could think of, went through Asling, went through RDLs, went through heavy strength development, went through Nordics, all the stuff that is research-based. And we have um, a lot of validity in selecting, of course, just from the research and everything else. But it wasn't solving his problem. So now this poses a different problem. Where do you go with that? If you, if you only have strength in your tools, what's the next step? Uh, and that's where the red pill sort of stuff helped me a lot, whereas I started looked in at the forest. So where else is the problem? So what I the conclusion I came to was that this particular player um, had a real problem with his foot. So his foot was like a block of ice. It didn't move. You have 26 bones down there for a reason. They're supposed to... You know, they're supposed to absorb force. They're supposed to take force when the foot hits the floor and then they're supposed to lock up again. The muscles around it lock it up and then it's, it, it applies force. So recognizing the function of the foot is the first thing. But when it's a block and it's been injected a number of times to be more of a block, which I know it sounds crazy, but that's what actually happened this athlete. Now you've got a foot that when it hits the floor, and, and as Newton's law suggests, that once the force goes through the body or through the ground, you're getting an equal and opposite reaction from the for, uh, from the ground coming up. So, But if you've got a foot that isn't absorbing any forces and you think of that Newton's cradle, you know, the one with the balls and you lift one ball at one end and it hits all the balls and it hits the other one at the other end and it just keeps on going, it's like a, a continuous transfer of force. The force never lost because the balls are rigid. They have a small bit of contact on the balls and, and the force transfers quickly through that's why if they were sponges it would stop after 10 seconds so now his foot is like a newton's cradle just transferring force through the force up through the foot into the body and there's no kind of biomechanical reaction at the foot to take some of the load off at the calf and then up into the hip and the knee so we did very very little hamstring based exercises we fixed the foot basically we got it functioning properly and now i'm not saying that this is the only thing you need to do i'm just saying from assessment and where we went with it and unfortunately i can say and i'm not trying to say of uh, the world solved or anything but it's in, in this particular case he's now injury free three years running you know and never had a hamstring injury since now that couple of degrees more motion or a couple of degrees more um, degrees of freedom in the foot has now meant far less forces traveling up through the body. So the body as a system is able to handle those forces. And it might be when, when muscles do break down, you know, you think of the tensile strength of a muscle, it might just be a few newtons above the breaking force of that muscle to cause the injury to happen. Now, if you can go, if you can keep your threshold beneath that, no one gets injured, you know, because forces are going to go through the hamstring whether we like it or not. But if we can now get more things into play and lessen the force and lessen the capacity of uh, needed for the hamstring to take this force, then we're less likely to be injuries. And that can happen, again, like I said, from looking at the whole picture, not just the hamstrings in isolation. Um, so that foot seemed to be working for him. It may, not, may work for some people, may not work for others, but when you assess the athlete, you assess the function, you assess the limitations, you recognize what the sport demands of him, then you can make uh, you know the right adjustments and hopefully you can answer the problem that sometimes strength doesn't always answer. Would you mind giving us a few more details around what the program looked like for the foot in particular? Is that possible to give you a little bit more context around what you were doing to, to free that foot up, which potentially led to the, the success you had with the program? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So sometimes we we put, we select exercise what requires a very stiff foot, like a locked foot, if you like. You know, um, I, I'm not sure. I can't remember. I think he had an um, an orthotic in one of the sides as well to kind of stabilize his foot more. When we took that away straight away, and I wanted to teach the foot to do the 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 unlocking and locking. Um, so we started with um, sort of isolated foot release. So you can you can kind of put the foot on a, in an everted state already and then drive it with the other leg. So you get this kind of uh, flattening of the arch to into the space. That's one way of doing it. You can manually, you can get a therapist to manually 
distract the calcaneus at the back and then loosen off the mid-tarsal joint. That's something you can also do. And he he did he got that done himself. Um, and then all but but you can you can create that sort of um, forty-five degree angle with a with a with a weight or whatever else, and and then hold on to something and then drive the foot into eversion, and that then releases the foot a little bit. And then you can see if well now can I do a lunge and I still get that rotation or or is it still does it still lock up? So just we we went through a process of trying to do foot releases in isolation and then trying to bring it into function like a lunge or a lateral lunge or whatever else because they're they're very similar to to what he has to do when he runs and stuff in terms of the the tibial rotation and the and the femur rotation and the, the glute loading and everything else so but we started with trying to release the foot and that was the, the biggest thing now we got manual treatment as i said and we have exercises you can do on you can use different apparatus really to try and get the and and the thing is with all this stuff is there isn't one exercise that fits everybody because i can say a few exercises that we did but you put it on someone else and it doesn't work for whatever reason you know there's something that doesn't there's like it's like there's a key that fits somewhere and we if you know what you're looking for you're looking for that release of the foot you might try i mean we tried about 20 exercises until we found something that was actually working for him and it was the manual therapy that really helped him get that foot unlocked, get that mid-tarsal joint unlocked, and then we can drive it back into function itself. And then he's suddenly feeling his glute when he didn't feel his glute before because you got that biomechanical reaction up through the body. Because when the foot hits the floor, that's what's going to happen. The calcaneus is going to evert the talus, the bone of the hop is going to fall down and in, which drives internal rotation of the tibia, which then is going to mo- load up the musculature around it because the bone, when bones move, muscles feel that rotation because they're attached to them. And then they either allow the movement or they pull it back in by, you know, by muscle spindles will react to it and then pull and pull the pull the bone back to where it is, you know, or where it should be. Um and then again that's that's either people who can get into movement or can't get out of movement, you know. So he couldn't get into that movement of the foot. So we tried to select as many exercises as we can to get his foot to evert um, on its own, but then in function. It's a super complex area, and it's one that's, I think, coming up more and more, especially with S&C coaches and maybe not, well, yes, the clinical physiotherapy side, but definitely more influenced with the SNC coaches now, Lee Taft spoke about it a lot. Lauren Landau talked about the, the function of the foot a lot. Is there any particular places that you would go education-wise or upskilling-wise to get to know a bit more about the function and, and, again, talking about the stuff that you've just been talking about? Yeah, it's quite complicated. You know, there's 26 bones with a lot of attachments, Adam, and all that. You can learn anatomy yourself. You don't need to go anywhere to learn anatomy. And once you know the anatomy and you know the foot, you know the function of the foot, it's not going to change. Trends will come and go, right? There'll be things that come and go, but the foot isn't isn't changing for as long as we live. The foot. So once you understand the foot, you've got a tool for life, really. The way where I went to was Red Pill. They helped me a lot, and they 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 got me to understand not just the the sort of the the cartosian of the, the cartosian of the foot and not saying I'm right those are the b- different bones how they overlap and how they in, interlink or inter interlink with each other but they also they taught me how they actually operate and how they function and the red pill is where I went I'd recommend anyone going there um it does add some tools um you know strength to your bow I guess but it adds it adds it added a lot to my practice, really. I, obviously, I didn't get away from the traditional SNC stuff, which is very vital. But as I said to you before, in, in certain scenarios where strength doesn't work or an athlete has a pain or an athlete can't get into movement, then this sort of stuff can supplement it really well and can take yourself to the next level, in my opinion. Love it. Well, last of the probably three or four points we wanted to cover for the last 10 or 15 minutes conditioning versus fitness <laughs> i know this is yeah. one thing that I, I'm, I'm keen to know your, your thoughts around this and why you wanted to uh why you wanted to have a little chat about it which i'm, I'm delighted you, you you suggested it what's your thoughts around conditioning versus fitness yeah um yeah it's a topic that i uh hold close to my heart really i i, I like talking about it and and um, when I discovered a little bit about it, it was, it was a bit of a eureka moment, really. So, like, 
for me, fitness is just your general fitness. What a lot of people do, you find fitness anywhere. It could be a 5K, 10K. It's kind of non-specific. It's just general fitness. You know, conditioning then is is more sport-related and demands of what you have to do because you all know the athlete who can run a 5K, but you put them in the, and or run a 10K, run a marathon, for instance. So they're fit, okay? They're fit, but you put them in a pool or put them on a bike and they, they just they lose all. Like for me, I can run okay, but I can't swim. You know, right? And what breaks down there is my condition to swim. Okay, my skill to swim, but also my conditioning in the water is just non-existent, right? So there lies someone, or you can take on someone else who's really fit in a running capacity, but put them in the context of a sport or something else, they lose, they just can't meet the demands of the of whatever it is and that's where conditioning comes in and i think that applies to our sport then so we went on a bit of a journey at man city to try and oh well how can we improve our training how can we be better in training how can we be more conditioning specific as opposed to just getting fit because we can all do the maz test and, and don't get me wrong i'm not saying there's anything wrong with mazes or anything wrong with 5ks or anything they have their place and they have a certain adaptation to them but conditioning is then more understanding the demands of the game. It's working at the game and taking a one step back and trying to operate in that space rather than taking four steps back and doing that fitness. And the way I I kind of uh, sort of summarize it is, is in a continuum, right? So you've got the top of the continuum is the, is the game. And then every time you take a step back, so you might do a conditioning drill with a ball into a finish, whatever, that's a kind of a step closer to the game. But then you might go back and do a Maz run, that's a step behind for me. Or you might do a bike session, that's another step behind. Or you might do a roar session, that's another step behind. Or you might do a circuit, you know, whatever. You can fit all exercise training modalities on a continuum. And the closer they are to the sport, for me, they transfer more to the sport. And this this idea got that got sparked up in me by, by a discussion I have with Loren, who's, who's Pep Guardiola's uh, coach, and he talked about his way of conditioning. And he showed, like, all these drills that he does, and he didn't sort of classify in the way I'm saying it now, but it was it, it, that's how I kind of understood it in my head, that I, I used to see things in kind of black and white. I used to go... Technical one end, if you do 100% tactical work, then you're doing 0% physical because there's no overload. Or if on the other side, if you do 100% physical and you just go after adaptation, typically there's no tactical work there. So there's two separate ends and it has to know what adaptation I'm looking for and then I go after that, you know. But he spoke, he spoke about working in the gray area, really. And he mixed a lot of the concepts that Pep was trying to get across and he integrated his physical elements. So how we went about doing it was... Right, let's look at all the tactical and technical elements, our principles, we call them. So things you can't deny, right? So passing, setting, finishing, crossing, all these kind of elements of the game that you need to have. And then on the other side, we listed all the physical qualities that we want to have. So your aerobic endurance, anaerobic, speed, power, whatever it might be. So all the principles on one list. And then we said, right, let's create drills that incorporate many of those skills if you like you know both tactically and technically but physically also and can we come up with sessions and drills that induce both right and then how do we analyze them you know so that's what we developed a, a drill a framework with the principles because that's important to have principles in your practice and then we develop drills and then we analyze those drills across a couple of metrics we, we analyze them across gps metrics you know what do they actually how close are they to the, the the quantitative analysis of the game but then also we looked at it from a more of a qualitative sort of um coach's intuition if you like of the drill so and 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 there's always this relationship between threshold and skill right so if a skill is too high for an athlete like the skill is too high it doesn't allow them to induce a threat when i say a threshold i'm talking about heart rate response okay and if you looked at a game you would have on average like a beats per minute about 180 beats per minute in in, in, a, in a first half of, of game or whatever right so in that game the average beats is 180 per minute and they have to perform tactical and tactical um executions in in that with high heart rate right so that's what we're trying to replicate in training surely if we're trying to develop someone so we would analyze the drill so how technical did we do it and then how much of an how much of an induced um physical response did we get looking at heart rate so um what happened a lot of the time was if we put the skill too high for the individuals that were involved so demand was too high we didn't induce much so they would operate the skill and sometimes it's too low as well uh, if the skill was too high, it wasn't hard enough to induce threshold. It's a bit like uh, a pull-up, right? If you can't do pull-ups, you're never going to get a heart rate high enough to do the skill. 
But if you're good at pull-ups, you can do, say, 10 of them, and you'll get a high heart rate or burpees or whatever, you know. But but then it's the, and the flip side is then if, this, if the threshold is too high, then the skill drops down. So it's trying to find that balance of the both together. And that's, I think that's where the, the, the best drills that we came up with lay. Sometimes you have to separate them. Sometimes it's just the technical. But you know the end goal is about developing the threshold, the endurance, the aerobic capacity, whatever, in a skill-induced environment. Because they have to perform skills when they're fatigued or close to or high heart rate. You know, you and me kicked around the ball, we'd be fine, but then suddenly you drive a heart rate up through the roof, then our skill breaks down. Why? Because we can develop, we can perform the skills at high level of, uh, of, of physical um, uh, physical exertion, if you like. Is, is it Loren? Yeah. Okay. What's it, is his background a, a coaching background or is it a... Um, I, I believe so. I mean, he, he's that good on the on the field. He, he must have some kind of coach. But he's he's been around one of the best coaches in the world for so many years. He's would have learned a lot of lessons along the way. But again, that's that's a good practitioner who's able to see the game, able to develop. And you you wouldn't really necessarily see the first team doing a lot of mass runs and everything else. And sometimes you go, why are they? You know, why are they not doing you know this stuff? And but when you analyze the game, and this is why the sport matters, and you realize what's important, and 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 and, and Pep's teams are. are physically good also but they're very um they're very efficient i would say they, they know their roles they know where to be so they, you know they, they have both together and that's really important to get across and then your team and a team might be different you know it might be a running game that you need so you might need more mass runs it, this is the whole why sport matters but also the context matters you know but for us when we're at man city you know you wanted technically good players you wanted tactically astute players and you needed physically decent players also but they had to do them in the context of their position and their role on the pitch. And, and that was important to understand. So if we blend them better, better together. One, you get more buy-in, which obviously is a secondary point. But I think, two, you're now tackling the conditioning element as opposed to just going after the fitness element. Sorry to dumb it down and get you to give examples again, but is there any examples of drills that you came up with which you can potentially communicate to paint, paint the picture? Uh, yeah, maybe, a, maybe, ticked, maybe ticked a, I don't know, a really good uh, physical box that you wanted, but also incorporates, you know, something interesting on the on the on the technical side. Is that yeah, possible? It, it's it's hard, I suppose, because the videos is the best way to get it across. Yeah. But like how we analyze it was, we would sit with the coaches and design these drills and go right, okay, what technical elements are you going to? So I want them to be doing a lot of crossing under fatigue, except for the fullbacks. And then, okay, today they need a more aerobic stimulus. So they might have done um, a sort of high heart rate, change of direction, not a lot of rest, and then going into like a sprint to cross a ball, receive a ball and, and cross, you know, and have to sprint back again and continuous for like three, four minutes, you know, and seeing how successful they are crossing the ball as their heart rate goes up, you know. And that's just a simple, simple okay. drill, of course. But uh, we would do other things whereby, you know, if we were playing – and this is where the tactical started to come into. I remember, I remember we were playing um, Inter Milan, and the way we could have beat Inter Milan was the playing a pass in between the fullback and the centre half, and we would just set up the drill where a, a pass would be played in that position. But we would start to run very far because I wanted sprint distance, I wanted high speed running in 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 the in the session. So we would manipulate the play where, and then obviously it's long rest because you're getting high end stuff, so it's not aerobically challenged. But there's a few passing sequence into a long pass that goes in between the two positions that I mentioned and then it's a big sprint to get on the end of it now we we didn't put any goalkeeper in there because we didn't want the finishing to turn and take away from the physical if you know what I mean if you're putting finishing there there might have been a shorter run because you, you now have to perform a skill at the end of the run so all these kind of things kind of manipulate each other and it's kind of like a slide rule we we and 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 I think to say is it was very messy to begin with like it was we were we were almost better off doing the mass stuff and doing the other stuff and doing it separate. But we knew we didn't want to always work in that way. We wanted to develop a library of drills that we could pull upon that we know were useful, you know, were good, and the players bought into it really. Uh, and sometimes you'd have to utilize your staff because we'd separate up positions. So the center halves and the fullbacks would do something, and then the midfielders and the striker would do something, and then the wide players would do something different, you know, because obviously you have to. You have to understand what people are capable of also you know it can't just be 
um, caution to the wind on that that front. But yeah, so we 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 went around that route, and the premise of it all was to go look: can we condition him better than just get him fit? You know, um, because if you don't do that, like I remember when we play games in say a checker trade. So these kids are only seventeen playing against men, you know, and. We would have obviously play the ball like play like nice brand of football, but give away the ball at the worst point and just be exposed and have to do these transition runs. So as fit as we could be, we could do the runs all day if we wanted. But the problem was we kept on giving the ball away up top, so we didn't train skill with um, fitness, if you know what I mean. So it's important that and if you don't give the ball away, you have to do less runs. So it's better to be ten percent more more proficient with with fitness than it is to just be 15% fitter because you're never going to solve the problems if you just keep, you know, bashing away at the fitness alone in isolation, I think, in my opinion. That's interesting. It's, it's, the, it's the gray area because like majority of sports scientists, again, scientists being the title, black and white, like everything in the box, everything in the spreadsheet, color-coded, nice and smart, MAS run, everyone's going yeah. from A, B, and it's all it's all regimented and it's all black yeah. and white it's, it's yeah. easily managed and then you get into this what you just described and it's it's all over the place and you're kind of mm. figuring it out as you go and it's a little bit chaotic yeah i'm getting people become nervous at that point because it's not how we're programmed as sports scientists to have an answer and a and a box for everything yeah yeah, that, and that, and that's why I get that's a great point. Like, because that's exactly so. I heard all this stuff. and goes, it makes sense. I can't deny this doesn't make sense. But in my head, I had to sort of make it a bit more excelly, if you like. And like, I had to go. All right, what are the principles? You know, I had to kind of have a process behind it too. Because I think if it was too airy fairy, I just it wouldn't sit right with me. But then I had a structure behind it. It made a bit of sense. There was a bit of logic to it. And then when the process unfolds, it's a bit more arty also because, yeah, you're right. Like you, you can get people to do mass runs. You can predict everything. You can go, all right, today they did 107.5% of their MAS. And you can mark it out with a meter stick. I did all that too, you know. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's great for preseason. Now you're separating the skill completely from the threshold stuff. And you're doing the threshold very well. But at some point, somewhere, if you're going to get the biggest transfer across, you have got to blend them in together. And I don't think you can just rely on training to do that. I think you have to go out and and and, and purposely try and design your training to get that out of it. Cool. Well, I think we've we've covered, we've covered all the points, and I've I've been enthralled, and I'm special. I'm even more enthralled with this with David Silver um, shirt behind you, which is superbly placed. Yeah. Oh, I know, yeah. I bought that today. I got a printer today. But... <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's been great to chat to you. And uh, congratulations. I mean, I think I messaged you on the day, but I'm a few months late with the Scottish qualification because that's obviously yes. that was obviously a big thing for for you guys. Um, yeah, interesting to see what happens next next summer. Yeah, will be interesting. No, that was that was a great day. Um, that was really good, and obviously, I've just been privileged to be part of that. That was that's been a team building for for so many years with under Graham and and his team as well. So it's nice to be part of it. Uh, Graham will always joke I just jumped on the bandwagon at the right time, you know. But uh, <laughs> hopefully, you help, you know, in the best way you can. But uh, it, it's a real privilege to be part of of a team like that. No, it's been brilliant to chat to you, mate. Thank you, thank you for coming on. If anyone's got any questions for you based on this or anything else, what's the best place for people to get in touch? Yeah, um, it's probably social media, to be honest. So on Instagram, SDM Performance, if you want to send me a private message or whatever, I'm happy to do it. Just Twitter. It's all, it's usually SDM Performance is the, is the social handle. So, yeah, just reach out that way if you, if you want. Yeah, or Shane at SDMPerformance.com. Perfect. SDM. Yeah. SDM, yeah. It's Shane David Murphy, yeah. Happy days. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Well, yeah, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for giving up your evening to uh, to have a chat. Really appreciate it. Apologies for taking, it's taking so long to get you on. No, it's fine. It's better. Oh, yeah. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Thank you. Speak to you, mate. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 327 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Shane for coming on, being so honest and open about his transition away from full-time employment into consultancy, and also giving us some real insights from his time at Manchester City and some of the things that are coming down the pipe, and also the case studies, which uh, which I really appreciate because that's that's goal, absolute gold when it comes to uh, to conversations on the podcast. So also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, 
Black Box Fitness, Kitman Labs and Perch for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really, really appreciate their support. So we've got some cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. It seems to be a football slash soccer month, um, but some really interesting guests from a variety of backgrounds. And thank you for tuning in again. Thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you next week.